You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon from Firehouse Studios in Bloomington, Indiana. I'm Abe Shapiro. And I'm Noelle Herhusky Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, June 15th, 2022. Title IX was implemented for opportunity. Um, And so if you're looking at Title IX, you're looking for equal opportunity for men and women in sport. Later in the program, WFHB sports correspondent Ornye Afuako speaks with Professor Lauren Smith, a sports media scholar at the IU Media School about Title IX and opportunities for women's college athletics. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment hosted and produced by Richard Fish. More following today's feature, but first, your daily headlines. The Bloomington Redevelopment Commission voted on a contract with Meridium at their meeting on June 6th. Director of IT Rick Dietz presented on the Bloomington Meridian Project to install a fiber optic cable that would provide high-speed internet in the city. Commissioner Cindy Kinnarney asked about the financial sustainability of the investment. Meridian Representative Nick Phillips responded. Uh, so to answer that question, we've obviously been doing a lot of development work over this for the past year uh, plus. Uh, and the way Meridian structures this, there's a couple things that are taken on camera. right? Obviously the main driver is the cost element of building the network that is a significant driver. Um, so we've been working with our construction partners uh, throughout and we have fixed prices from them. So we have a very strong understanding of what it's gonna cost us to build this network. Uh, we've also been working with uh, both internal resources and outside uh, consultants to develop a forecast of user subscribers and, and how they ramp up over time. Um, so with that, we've taken that to our investment committee and, and signed off on the, the long-term plan. Um, now, I, you know, for those of you who were there last week, we talked about Meridian's long-term view. So I mean, this does you know, maybe have longer payback periods than, than others would look at, um, but that's what fits our investment profile. And then I guess the other thing we point out that in the event that our prognostications are completely wrong, um, that's a risk that is ultimately borne by Meridian and there's no risk to the city. Um, so ultimately, the network will always stay in place. And I think we touched upon this question briefly last week. Uh, you know, the cost to operate the network once it's built is relatively small. So the it would never make sense to not operate it once it's in the ground. Um, so, you know, the network operation will continue no matter what. We would never in, rip it out. Um, so. Um, ultimately, though, if it doesn't meet the projections, that's a risk that it's going to cost Meridian money. The commission voted unanimously to approve the contract with Meridian. The city council will hear about the project at their next meeting. Such a meeting has been scheduled for June 20th. On June 6th, at the Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting, Utilities Project Coordinator Nancy Axum presented a contract for the extension of water and sewer lines with SOMO Development Company. Yes, this is somewhat similar to what we've done in the past for what we called water main installation credits. Um, Now they're called water and sewer extension revenue allowance refunds. Um, The IURC has added sewer to their 
area of oversight for these types of things. Usually we only go to them for soup for water. Um, but what these are is a reimbursement to the contractor, the developer, for uh, kind of like an asset value when they turn that main over to us, we pay back to them um, an amount of the revenue that we get from that for the next three years. That adjustment or um, calculation is explained in that agreement, but if you have any questions or <coughs> wanting clarifications, I can answer that for you. Board member Jean Kapler asked about the wording in the contract about remonstrances against future customers. Axum responded. I believe what that means is if a, a connection or an extension co comes along beyond what they've installed, I believe it's for that. So mm -hmm. we're going to pay them back some revenue allowance for, in this example, there's 90 lots in this subdivision. Mm -hmm. So they will be paid back based on those 90 lots. If someone new comes along and de develops a neighborhood beyond this and extends beyond it, mm -hmm. they can't. Um, argue against that oh, extension okay. and okay. they won't be paid any money beyond their extension because they're getting paid for their part. Right. The next people will get paid for their part. The board unanimously approved the contract with SOMO Development Company. Director of Utilities, Vic Kelson, informed the board that there are currently seven vacant positions which he hopes to fill as soon as they find qualified candidates. It really is a tough time right now. We're not getting as many applicants as we're used to seeing. Uh, in TND, the last time I checked, we, we did get a new hire last week, so I think we are seven short in TND, four laborers, um, a line person, and uh, two in meter service, I believe. Um, so we, but we are currently short staffed there. Uh, the plants, uh, we have been successful in hiring at the plants, and I believe all our operator positions are filled now. Um, in uh, uh, finance, I think we still have one, well, with Laura included, we have two. Um, oh, and purchasing's down a couple as well. So we are, uh, recruiting is, is slow. Uh, we do have some positions that are advertised as uh, open until filled, um, mm -hmm. and we get a, a few applications each week, but we haven't been getting um, a lot of qualified applicants for some okay. of these positions. The next Bloomington Utilities Service Board meeting will be held on June 21st. In today's feature report, WFHB sports correspondent Onyi Afuako speaks with Professor Lauren Smith, a sports media scholar at the IU Media School about Title IX and opportunities for women's college athletics. This is part one of a two-part series here on the WFHB Local News. We turn to that report now. It's been 50 years since Title IX, the federal civil rights law prohibiting sex-based discrimination from schools and educational programs receiving federal funding, was passed. Now that the landmark legislation has been around for half a century, it begs the question, where are things now? In the year 2022, 
Women's collegiate athletics are still looking for equal funding and support. Female college athletes are also looking for better exposure to showcase their skills. Unfortunately, they're doing so in a society that is still behind when it comes to its views on the importance of women's athletics. While society plays catch-up, Indiana University is taking steps to make sure its women's sports teams are well-supported. For many young women, sports are not just a game, but they are vehicles that foster healthy growth and development for young women and girls everywhere. According to Lauren Smith, a professor at Indiana University's media school who specializes in sports media, sports offer positive benefits to young girls on and off the field. There have been so many studies out there that talk about the benefit of sports for girls and young women with respect to confidence, with respect to mental health, with respect to, you know, just life building skills. Female athletes end up being more confident. They feel better about themselves overall. They do better in school. So the benefit of sport period is is definitely unmatched for women. With respect to IU's excellence initiative, it seems like they're taking those foundational things and helping to build those skills into areas other than just sport with respect to leadership training, with job training, so that student athletes can take those skills, that confidence, those leadership skills, and translate them into a real practical experience that will continue to benefit them once they are no longer athletes. Title IX was meant to provide equal opportunities for men and women in collegiate sports. However, Smith points out that there is still work to be done. Title IX was initially, or Title IX was implemented for opportunity. Um, And so if you're looking at Title IX, you're looking for equal opportunity for men and women in sport, Um, that that women are not limited by their gender, they're not punished by their gender. Um, And so overall, Title IX is supposed to support that equal opportunity. Does it? Uh, No. There have been a couple studies that have come out in the past couple months that show despite being 50 years into Title IX, uh, funding still is not equal. Uh, universities across the country are still falling short of the, the mandates of Title IX. So even though that law is there, the opportunities still are not. Even with such a law in effect, there's still a disparity between the amount of opportunity and funding. Smith says that women's athletics have not gotten the opportunity to make up ground in comparison to their male counterparts. I don't know that they're necessarily left behind. I don't know that they're not being given the opportunity to even catch up. You know, when you look at the media coverage for years of of women's sport in this country, women's sport is not covered. You know, mainstream media, only about 4% of airtime is devoted to women's sport. You know, if you take that attitude and apply it down to athletic departments at the collegiate level, even with a federal law mandate, you know, when you have those ingrained ideas that women's sports are not the norm, that they're not what we see on TV, that it's not what gets people excited, you know, I can see where it would be hard for an athletic department to say it's worth it to make this investment. Athletic departments that have, though, I think, see the importance of that, understand that. You look at overall in the sport landscape in the country, you know, we've had professional men's leagues since, you know, 1960s and earlier. We didn't get our first women's professional league until uh, 1999-2000. So again, it's just, you know, women's women's sports have been behind. There's a lot less years of of coverage, of access, of investment. So that's that's why I say I don't think they've even been given the opportunity to catch up. Women in collegiate sports are going up against more than just a gap in opportunities that women receive as opposed to men. Part of the problem stems from the attitudes of the public as well. 
According to Pew Research Center, 46% of women compared to 29% of men believe that Title IX has not gone far enough to increase opportunity for women in sports. According to Smith, this is more obvious to women because they're the ones affected. I think female athletes look around in their own athletic departments and they see what the men get, they see what they get, um, and they can tell with their own eyes that, that those opportunities are not equal. Another significant statistic that the survey found was that 61% of Americans said that funding in men's and women's sports should be equal. A sizable portion, 21%, said the funding should be based on the money brought in by the team. According to Smith, there are several flaws with these attitudes. They're significantly behind. Um, I think a lot of people will rest on that argument that if a woman's team and a women's sport can't bring money in, then they shouldn't be deserving of um, equal pay, of equal funding, of equal opportunity. You know, when, when you look at that, if you make that statement, though, then that means really, you know, typically football, men's basketball are going to be the sports that bring in money. So under that, that would also eliminate men's tennis because it's not bringing in the revenue that, that football or basketball would. Um, I think it's a very inaccurate assumption that, that people make about how college athletic funding works because Title IX, again, isn't necessarily always about funding. It's about opportunity. And so when you're looking at Title IX, you're looking at are men and women getting equal access to scholarships? Are they getting equal access to play? Unfortunately, Title IX doesn't really deal a lot with funding. But I think that that type of attitude just hurts sports overall, but definitely women's sports. Smith said that in order for men's and women's sports to be treated equally, there are some mountains to climb. Fortunately, she walked through some potential solutions that could help the problem. More investment from the schools, more of a buy-in, uh, more willingness to promote their, their female athletics, more willingness to promote their teams, uh, more willingness to promote what they're doing on and off the field. You know, people will make the argument that there's not a market for women's sports, but if you're not putting women's sports where people can access them, you know, if you're not putting them on television that's not behind a paywall, if you're not writing articles about them, if you're not talking about them on the radio, people can't access that. Once they have that access, once they have that understanding, you know, then they can watch those sports, become fans, become avid, you know, spectators. Um, so just, you know, again, make, being willing to make that investment, but also being willing to make it accessible to people. Despite its shortcomings, Title IX has had a significant impact over the last 50 years. It has opened doors to young women and girls across the United States by providing opportunities through things such as athletic scholarships. According to Smith, there are other significant strides women have made under the legislation as well. The fact that the opportunity is there is is obviously the biggest one. When I was when I was growing up and I was an athlete, my sport heroes were men for the most part because I was still fairly on the younger side of of Title IX, you know, and coming up in the Title IX world. My sports heroes were men for the most part. Uh, but you now have a generation of women whose sports heroes are women. Those are the people they can look up to. They can see that that female athletes are successful. They can see women athletes are incredible people. Um, so to be able to have that knowledge um, and have those role models has been a huge, huge factor. You know, women's sports participation continues to grow. Um, I think right now in the country, it's about 42 or 43 percent of all of the athletes are women. So even, you know, just having that opportunity to get out there is a huge, a huge positive for Title IX. 
you know, in the doors that it's opened for women, both in athletics and outside uh, in their professional lives have been huge, huge growth opportunities and huge benefits for women. The question is, what is holding women's sports back from flourishing to their full potential? According to Smith, one of the biggest hurdles to growth and popularity is the lack of accessibility to fans. For the fans who want to watch their team on television, there are barriers to them doing so. In order to fix this, Smith says networks have to begin to see the value in women's sports and put them in a position to succeed. If you're talking about trying to go a market for women's sports, this is one conversation that I have with my students all the time when I ask you know, if they don't watch women's sports, why not? One of the biggest answers is because they can't ever find them to watch. So that might not necessarily be a micro IU level, but if you want continued support, if you want continued success for women's sports, then conferences have to start making that push to make their women's sports accessible. Networks have to realize the value of of women's sports and, and be willing to put it on. You know, ESPN moved the women's selection show for March Madness this year from Monday to Sunday. And when they moved it to Sunday and they put it in a, a really good prime viewing spot, their viewership numbers jumped. And that's what we're seeing typically across the board, that when you put these sports on television, when you make that accessible to audiences, we're seeing the numbers rise um, and we're seeing that the audience grow and we're seeing the audiences do huge number. The NCAA women's gymnastics uh, was put it in early slot on a Saturday afternoon because of ESPN's contract with the NHL. And the women's gymnastics uh, national championship, their viewership numbers were greater than the NHL. So, you know, it it all has to work at both the micro and the macro level. But even though I use doing a great job investing, people up the chain have to make that commitment as well. For WFHB, I'm Oni Afuaco. That was WFHB sports correspondent Onyi Afuaku speaking with Professor Lawrence Smith, a sports media scholar at the IU Media School about Title IX and opportunities for women's college athletics. Stay tuned for part two where our newest sports correspondent will speak with Ann Crawford, development director for the IU Women's Excellence Initiative. Up next, Cutting the Cost of Gas, Part 2, on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Want to pay less for gas? Here's the second part of our series on how you can effectively reduce the price of gas by as much as a dollar a gallon by increasing your gas mileage. Last time, we pointed out that you have to know what your gas mileage is all the time if you want to increase it. This time, here's a tip that makes it easy to do just that and saves you money in other ways. Keep your gas tank full. 
If you fill up your tank every time you buy gas, you can jot down the number of gallons on the pump and the mileage on your odometer. That's all you need. Even easier, you can zero out the trip odometer every time you fill up and then just read off the number of miles next time you pull up to the pump. I keep a little notebook in the glove compartment and write the numbers down every time, but you don't have to do that. Just knowing what the mileage is every time you buy gas is what really helps. Keeping your tank full is not more expensive. It costs you less than keeping it partly empty. Surprised? Well, think about it for a moment. Keeping your tank full doesn't cost any more. If you can't afford to buy 10 or 20 gallons of gas all at once, not at today's prices, maybe you buy small amounts more often and your gas tank is never more than partly full. Instead, fill up the tank once and then fill it up again when you've burned a few gallons. If you can only afford to buy five gallons of gas at a time, it obviously costs no more to put those gallons on top of the tank than on the bottom. This makes it easy to keep track of your mileage, and that's what makes all the rest of our suggestions really work. Besides that, if you keep plenty of gas in your car, you can always buy gas at the cheapest time and the cheapest place. There's an app called Gas Buddy that will tell you where the cheapest price is. We've all seen overnight price spikes, and we've seen how they often come back down some. If you keep your tank full, you can wait out a price spike or take advantage of a cheap source. Go right ahead and buy the cheapest gasoline you can find. Higher octane gas does not deliver better mileage, according to Mother Earth News. Most cars don't need it. Plus, you'll always have enough gas in the car if you have to make a sudden trip. In case of emergencies or if you're running late, you won't have to stop for gas or worry about having enough money. You can just go and take care of what's really important. So fill up your tank every time you buy gasoline. Figure your mileage every time you buy gasoline. Do those two things, and you'll be able to cash in on our other suggestions. And best of all, know that you've really saved some money. Next time, we'll tell you some surprising things about a piece of advice you've probably heard before. Keep your car together. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at wfhb.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at wfhb.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. We have an excerpt from Partisan Gardens, our latest public affairs program devoted to food justice. This comes from a program titled The Neighborhood Planting Project. The producers of Partisan Gardens spoke with Nick and May of Recalcitrant Seeds, who launched the Neighborhood Planting Project late last year. To listen to the full program, visit wfhb.org following this broadcast. We now turn to that excerpt from Partisan Gardens.
Hi, so my name is Nick. And my name is May. We're part of a project called Recalcitrant Seeds, and we launched the Chicago Neighborhood Planting Project in late 2021. We feel it's empowering for people to be able to meet their own needs and grow their own food. Climate change is really threatening our food security and supply chains, as we've seen in the past couple of years from both the pandemic and the war in Ukraine, can endanger food supply chains or even potentially cause them to collapse. And what we need both for climate resilience and general resilience is locally adapted food production. Um, on top of that, modern agricultural systems are really destroying our soil health. They release a ton of emissions from transporting food from place to place, and people in the earth would both be better off if we could grow more of our food ourselves in our own communities. Yeah, so this was the first year of the Chicago Neighborhood Planting Project. Um, we had never done anything like this and did not have really an existing infrastructure or group or space to build off of. We really didn't do a lot of like hype or advertising. We had a couple flyers we put on social media like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. In 2021, we had put out an interest survey to some neighborhood Facebook groups that some people responded to. And based off of those responses, we created a mailing list, which we had followed up with about our event. Um, but really, it was pretty low effort for just putting these things out on social media. They got reshared by a bunch of larger accounts um, around like food sovereignty and gardening, which I think is really where most of the attendance came from, was from it being shared. And the neighborhood where we hosted the event, Humboldt Park, is on the west side, which has some of the sparsest tree canopy in the city. We really want nature to exist in our neighborhoods, and we want ourselves and our communities to have access to locally grown native foods. I recently read an article about indigenous food forests in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, um, and I found myself really enamored with the idea of being able to walk through the place where you live and be surrounded by abundant food that you can pick off a tree at any time of year. And I think we deserve to have natural spaces and resources and food like that in our lives. And another reason that we decided to do this project is because we wanted to make connections with people in Chicago who we didn't already know who were doing the same work or had you know, similar or overlapping interests. Chicago is a really big city. It's really spread out. It's very neighborhood based and there's a lot of people doing a lot of cool things, but there um, aren't always ways to meet. Um, so we hoped that our event could be a convergence point for both us and attendees to make connections with each other. And planting trees is a way for people to you know, learn new skills and to realize that they have the power to improve their lives and their communities in a really immediate and tangible way. In Chicago, on paper, there are policies and resources for people to request that the city plant a tree in front of their property. But in practice, 
that's something that doesn't happen efficiently or at all, um, or the process by which it's done is opaque and inaccessible to many Chicagoans. Um, so this event was hopefully, and it seemed in actuality for some of the people who attended, like some people from Humboldt Park, from Garfield Park, to come get a tree and put it in the ground in front of their home the next day, rather than waiting for the city to plant a tree, maybe later this summer, maybe next year, maybe never. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar-powered generated systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at www.mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhushki Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Orni Afuako. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Kate Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky Schneider. And I'm Abe Shapiro. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at www.wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned now for Cool Solutions, Climate Action from the Bottom Up. Coming next, only on WFHB Community Radio.